Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Stick to Wrestling, a, a podcast about stuff, classic wrestling, usually from 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm John McAdam. Uh, if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Before I get rolling, I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook page. A lot of good conversation there. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Kind of a quick intro this week because it is episode number 250. I don't know how anyone got 250 episodes out of me, but I'm glad they did. And let's hope we can get to 300. This is like me getting 25, excuse me, 250,000 miles out of that 1988 Saturn SL2. And yes, I did that. I want to bring on our usual co-host steve generelli steve thanks for taking the time and be parting with us right now yeah well, happy anniversary happy anniversary to you john on 250 uh last week i wasn't here my my beautiful wife has put up with me taking her steely dan concerts and it was her turn she wanted to see leonard skinner uh, they just had a major uh, death in the uh, group and we went to see leonard skinner in plant city florida and she had a great time and i survived it so it's great to be back <laughs> Uh, well, we have different tastes in music, both me, you, and your wife. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> episode 250, I had to have a really special guest on, the founder and owner of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Brian Last. Brian, thank you for taking the time. Aloha, John. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, a joker like me, to big episode 250. It's an honor, and it's good to talk to Steve as well. And it's nice to hear you went to see Ricky Medlock and a bunch of people you never saw before, or Leonard Skinner, whatever you want to call them now. <laughs> but it's great to be here. Well, no, so you ha- you're taking naps. You take naps regularly. Well, I just had surgery the other day. <laughs> Some of oh, so it's, it's a surgery yeah. nap. It's like a, not like a nap nap. I got off uh, yesterday. Was the last day I had painkillers, so the painkillers are over. I've switched to Advil, and uh, I'm a little tired. And again, I'm still healing up. So there's a lot of things happening that need some rest. I see. Steve. Nothing against a nap, though. Naps are a wonderful thing. You see, that that's what I was going to say. Steve, I, I have not taken a nap literally since October 1997 when I had to get on a really early flight and go to Florida. Naps wrecked my day. Steve, how about you? Are you a nap guy? Uh, apparently I am because today after a baseball game, I came home and took a two-hour nap to prepare for the podcast. Oh, okay. I, you see, I see. I, I envy you because you know if I take a nap, that's it. I'm groggy the rest of the day. But it's not what the I love that you know the specific time that you took your last nap. That's like Seinfeld knowing when he threw up. The last time I threw up was on this day. I haven't napped, and I was expecting you to say like in like three years. You're like since October of '97. <laughs> <laughs> because it was a special occasion. I had to get up. I had to get out of bed at like five in the morning. And airplanes kill me. Airplanes make me tired for whatever reason. So I just like get to Florida and crash. But yeah, that was the last time. Well, this has been 250 episodes of Stick to Wrestling. We hope everyone has enjoyed the production. And uh, stay tuned next week for Lou's Dance Party. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't supposed to say that until the end of the show. <laughs> Sorry.
We each have a mailbag episode, wide open mailbag episode. You could have, you could ask us anything or you could have if you were part of the Facebook group. That's why I need to join. Brian, as the guest, I would like you to select the first question for Steve and I. I haven't, I haven't even introduced Steve. What am I doing? No, no, you got me in there. I'm good. All right. I, I didn't. Yeah. Okay. I did. All right. So, Brian, what question would you like to discuss? You know what? Hold on. I didn't realize I was picking the question. So I'm right now headed to the wonderful Stick to Wrestling podcast Facebook group. And I encourage everyone to join this group. Like you said before, and you weren't lying. Great conversations here. Let me see. Topics you know for Stick Brian's to Wrestling. Looking, Yes. Here's another reason to join the Facebook group. I'm going to put up a list of everyone who should have won the Heisman Trophy since 1980. That's coming up. What do you think of Bo Jackson winning it? In, I was like, all five? for Bo Jackson winning it. And we I had just, a guy from Plymouth State who was, like, heavy on the ballot. And Plymouth State is in New Hampshire, ladies and gentlemen. And I was like, no way this guy deserves the Heisman. It's Bo. I just finished Jeff Perlman's Bo Jackson biography, which I love. I'm a big Jeff Perlman fan. I like his stuff. And it's weird. Right after I finished it, not to take things too far off track, I went back again and rewatched the ESPN 30 for 30 on Marcus Dupree, just because there were so many similarities between Bo Jackson and Marcus Dupree beyond the two sporter. I say two sport. Bo is actually into track and field also, but football, baseball. But there were so many similarities in terms of the hype before they went to school, before they went to, you know, Auburn or Oklahoma. So uh, I recently went back and watched that great book, though. I recommend it to everyone. The Bojack, The Last Folk Hero is the name of the book. Steve, do you know the uh, the uh, Marcus Dupree wrestling connection? Not not yeah. just him wrestling in Memphis. I do not. Bill Watts, one of the earliest episodes of Mid-South Wrestling in 1983, took about five minutes bitching about Oklahoma football. They had just lost to Arizona State in the Fiesta Bowl, and Bill Watts just went off on OU, and you could tell who he was talking about. He was talking about Marcus Dupree. He's like, wow, we've got a country club atmosphere out there now. I'm just like, I'd love to be Bill Watts and just get on my wrestling show and talk about whatever I want, kind of like what I'm doing now. Well, well, you know, at least uh, at, le- at least he was relating to the real world. I mean, you know, some of the wrestling we're more familiar with, you're, you're in a fantasy world where you never heard any uh, commentary about what was happening in society. Good point. Good point. All right, All right Brian, do you have a question? I'm looking through these questions. I, You know, I, it's weird when you have to pick your question. Uh, let's see. This one's about Larry Bird, so I'll skip that one. That seems like it's one right for John McAdam. I I didn't know the answer. (laughs) Here's a question from Joseph Harris. If Jim Hurd had allowed Telly Blanchard to come back to the NWA with Arn Anderson in 1989, could they have picked up the feud with the Midnight Express? Could they have picked it back up? What are your thoughts on that, Brian? So if Tully comes back in 89, he comes back after November. The Midnight Express had just turned back heel Mm -hmm. correctly. After turning on the Dynamic Dudes, one of the greatest babyface moments like in the history of real wrestling, <laughs> heel wrestling. Um, I don't think you could have done that then. I mean, well, you could have done some matches because when Arn first came in, technically he was a babyface. Arn, Ole, and Rick with Sting were babyfaces until February. I don't think you could have picked up the feud. I think you could have picked up, and they probably would have picked up and had some hot TV matches. Heel Midnight Express. Freshly heel again versus for the first time ever, babyface Tully and babyface Arn. I could see it, but Steve, before I before I get rolling, what do you think? No, I, I think that would have been a natural fit. I mean, when they uh, when Arn and Tully left the promotion, and I think they were in the 
beginning of that feud, uh, there was a lot of mileage left on that. So uh, no matter how they re- reignited the feud, I think the fans would have been chomping at the bit to see that. I, I agree with you. I think they wouldn't have done it right away. Um, I mean, the whole Tully and Heard thing was beyond complicated, but what should have happened was that Tully should have been, should have gotten his job right away. You know, hey, if you flunk one of our drug tests, fine, we'll, we'll punish you, but you know, what happened in the WWF is none of our concern. I, I would have never turned the horsemen heel again. They would have been baby faces forever. So not right away. But eventually, yeah, I would have booked a babyface Arn and Tully against a heel Midnight Express. I had that heel versus babyface feud. And going even further, I mean, I, I am still upset about what the NWA did to the Midnight Express in 1989. They were as hot as a team could be coming out of 1988. They kind of buried them a little bit with that uh that where they lost the tag team championships to the Road Warriors. I mean, I would have taken better care of all of that talent, and if I were running things, you would have eventually, that feud would have recontinued. Hey, John, if I could ask you a question, because you were someone who was quite involved in the smart fan scene, the Observer, trading tapes, whatever it may be at that time, and vocal about the mistakes, the troubles with Crockett Promotions, WCW, whatever you want to call it. When you look back now in retrospect, do you see Dusty Rhodes' last year as Booker the same way? Is there anything you think he got too much blame for or maybe not enough blame for? How do you see 1987 into 88 for Dusty now in 2023? I think, you know, I think every Booker has a shelf life. And Dusty absolutely peaked at Starcade 86 and everything continued to roll down after that. I think Dusty had a really hard time putting his ego aside. I mean, he thought that Midnight Rider angle was going to turn the promotion around. I'm not joking when I say that. I think, like I said, everyone has a shelf life. I think Crockett after Starcade 87, well, my understanding is he did sit down with Dusty, but the sit down should have included, you know, Dusty, we're going to put someone else in charge as Booker for at least a little while and, you know, We'd like you to stay in the company as a wrestler. Now, that's a tough transition, but it's something they needed to do. So to answer your question, I think Dusty did a bad job in 87 and largely a horrible job in 88. You know, I kind of feel the same way still, but I feel like for various reasons, there's been a lot of people, not necessarily revisionist history, but trying to reevaluate things. And, you know, I like that. Nothing wrong with that, but, you know, I think there still is so many problems with the booking at that period of time. It's hard to just dissolve Dusty of any of the issues. No, it certainly wasn't all Dusty. Um, I mean, Crockett was out of money. Yeah, also, our Christian body sent in a related question to the podcast. If Arne and Tully never leave in 1988, how does the Midnight Express and Horseman feud turn out? And does Dusty eventually get tossed out as Booker? Dusty was by far the clear favorite to retain the job as the booker in the NWA. I mean, new people had purchased the company. Wrestling is such a unique business, and being the booker is such a unique aspect to the business. You can't just put an ad in the paper, hey, we need a booker. So you're going to go, Dusty would have at least gotten a chance in 89 to get his act together, to put something together, 
And he instead did the angle on TV where he was told specifically not to have bloody, violent angles where the road warriors stabbed him in in the eye with a steel spike. If he hadn't done that, he would have gotten the job as Booker. At least for a little while. And remember, one of the reasons Tully fell out with the office completely was he was one of the first people to openly complain about Dusty to the TBS executives. It got back to Dusty to kick Tully off the plane. Yes. Next thing, next thing you know, Tully and Arn go to WWF. So it was a lot of things happening at that short period of time. There, there really was. I mean, and all of the wrestlers were in a bit of a panic because there was a real chance that company was going out of business. And you've got like 40, 50 guys on the roster. Vince ain't taking them all. No, he isn't. Uh, who's at the next question? That that would be Steve. All right. I, I've got a good one. That I want to hear your answers, uh, both of you, on. Randy Funk, not one of the Funk brothers, he's asking, sorry if this has been asked before, but what is the best book on wrestling that you've ever read? Can It can be a history or a biography or fiction, which some of the autobiographies feel like. So uh, what's your favorite wrestling book? Brian, what's your favorite wrestling book? Well, you know, before we say that, I just want to point out Randy Funk here, whose name I recognize he sent in questions to the Jim Cornette show in the past, and actually we just uh, got a post on the official Cult of Cornette Facebook group. He just put out a book. He put out a fiction book that has a wrestling theme. I don't have the name in front of me right now, but go to uh, Amazon, I guess, and check it out. Randall Funk or Randy Funk, if that's how he calls himself. But he just put out a book, so we should check that out. Support him. Cool. Congratulations, Randy. Best book. You know, there are a lot that I like. The Bret Hart one is still a favorite. That's a good one. Mick Foley's first book, because that was really a historic – it was – historically important that book as much as it was a good book and it was a good book i like tim hornbaker's death of the territories scott teal has put out a knife every scott teal book those are really oh, good wow books. scott has a lot of books oh he's got a lot of books and they're all worth it ladies and gentlemen crowbarpress.com i don't know off the top of my head i may go with the bret hart one unless something else pops into my mind all right my all-time favorite book is the McFoley book. I, I I thought it was very honest. I thought he told a lot of great stories. He made me laugh. I was interested. Close second is Chris Jericho's first book. I strongly recommend it. Yeah, Once that again, was good. Yeah, that was a, a good really book. funny book. Uh, yeah. Very informative. It, it tells you a lot about the guy coming up the ladder in pro wrestling. Maybe he told that part of the story even better than Mick Foley, who did an incredible job talking about, you know, getting trained by Danucci, et cetera. Well, I'm I add think, my... Oh, I'm sorry. Ahead, so I, Brian, say, I think that first Jericho book is really good. I don't like his other ones as much. No. Them, but that first one is really, really good. So, yeah, for me, it's the Fo- Foley's first book and Jericho's first book. And, yeah, you know, both guys kept writing books, and it's like, no, you're, you're all set. <laughs> you told the story. So, Steve, what about you? My favorite, I, I guess I would have to say, would be J.J. Dillon's book because I like how – Oh, that's a good one. That's a I, good one. I, yeah, I like the perspective of, you know, he, he tells the story of being a fan, being a referee, starting up in the business, uh, then his, you know, his more famous tenure as the manager, especially with the Four Horsemen, and then the end of the book is, you know, all the stuff he did behind the scenes with creative with the, the two major companies – and then the very end of the book is kind of like uh, post WCW, the death of WCW, and and kind of wrapping it all up neatly. 
And of course, we, we can't forget Brian Solomon for the Sheik book, which is a phenomenal that's right. book. That's a great, that's the, that's the best recent book, I think, though, in the I last few it. years. That Brian Solomon book is fantastic. And he's doing a Gorilla Monsoon one now. Can't yes, wait. Yes, I so. saw that. Yeah, Brian, congratulations on winning Wrestling Observer Newsletter Book of the Year. And we're going to have Brian Solomon back on the show pretty soon if he's willing to do it. But I, and by the way, you wanted to throw this in. JJ Dillon is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Just wanted everyone to know that. My, my question, I'm going to pick one. Justin Brown, what's the angriest you've ever been over wrestling? Can be for any reason. Ah, uh, my, my two non-serious ones, like, you know, the, when I found out what, what happened with Owen Hart, I think that got me the angriest more than anything. Uh, they were beyond reckless in asking him to do what they asked him to do. Mine, too, the first one is an obvious one, Black Saturday. For about five minutes, I was confused, and then I was really angry. And I'm like, okay, is World Championship Wrestling coming on after this? Because I've already seen most of these matches, and I get plenty of WWF TV. No, Georgia Championship Wrestling was pretty much gone for good. You had that six-in-the-morning show, whatever it was, but the real Georgia Championship Wrestling was gone. Also needs to be mentioned, 1983, I am watching WWF Wrestling on Channel 56 in Boston, and Vince McMahon says, and making his return to the World Wrestling Federation, batting down the hatches, it's George the Animal Steel, and I was furious because, okay, (laughs) we only get like 10 Boston Garden shows a year, and one of them just got ruined, and it did. Bob Mm. Backlund versus George Steel was horrible. Brian, how about you? You seem to manage your anger really well, but let's let's see what made you angry about wrestling. Oh, can I pick Carrie Silken ripping off me and Peter Berkowitz? Could that be my thing in wrestling that made me the angriest? That'd be my uh, number one pick. Only if you tell us the story. I'm not going to tell the whole story here because I, I want to clear it with uh, another party before I do because they were involved also. But yeah, that that one, Carrie Silken being a dirtbag, that's usually one of the ones near the top of my list. In terms of things I've seen on TV, that's actually tough. What has made me the angriest? I remember being angry at the way the WWE handled everything with Chris Benoit. But I don't know if there was like a specific point. Like, I'm I'm angry about this. I don't know when exactly that moment was because we found out that WWF or WWE was going with the tribute story, even though they already knew, which we didn't know until after the fact that Chris had murdered his wife and son. That made me really angry, just the way they handled that. And I think a lot of people felt that way. That was one of those points in wrestling where things could have gone, I mean, it went as bad as it could go, but it could have killed the business, actually, if things had gone too much worse at that moment. That made me angry. In terms of anything else, like when AEW brought in the Good Brothers, I was like, what the fuck? Like that one made me angry. I, I didn't understand. Sorry for cursing on your show. I apologize. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, I thought, it's what the more. fuck? Yeah, with these guys, why they keep getting jobs? They're terrible. But other than that, no, I mean, I have a pretty good capacity to watch wrestling and enjoy the stuff I like and kind of find the things that are funny and the things I don't like and just talk about them. So aren't too many examples I could cite off the top of my head things that really made me angry? Right. I just wanted to mention this to everybody. 
I used the word cunt on Brian's show like seven <laughs> times about five years ago while sharing an anecdote. So I guess him saying, fuck it, Neil, isn't that big a deal? Yeah. And four of those times were me saying, please stop calling me that. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet memories. But uh, now for, for me, uh, mine's, uh, mine's an easy one. Uh, and uh, Jamie Ward would appreciate this. Uh, my uh, angriest moment in wrestling was waiting for the Observer on a Saturday and it wouldn't show up till Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> You know what? That's the best one anyone could pick. Or used to read the Observer by the Mail. That's the yeah. best one. Thank you, Brian. Oh, I mean, I can tell you stories about me like going out with my girlfriend on a Saturday, and the Observer shows up, and I'm like <laughs> having dinner with my girlfriend while reading the Observer. It's like I just want to read the front page. Leave me alone. And I'm like, I'm reading back, front to back. I, I can imagine you. I can imagine you saying, John, uh, honey, could you pull the staple out for me? <laughs> I accosted the mailman several Saturdays. Like, what the fuck? I know it was in the mail. Why is it? <laughs> All right, what do you want me to do? I just, you know, I, I was a kid. I didn't know any better. But, oh, if you didn't get it on Saturday and you had to wait till Monday, that was I the know. longest wait ever. It was. And th- that's what made me, at times, hate Memorial Day weekend and Labor Day weekend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to pick a question here. Yeah, I'd like you to pick a question, sir. You mentioned Jamie Ward before. What a miscreant that man is. He is. I've known him for since the 80s. Miscreant doesn't do it. <laughs> anyway. All kidding aside, because I love Jamie. He's a great Same guy. Same here. Good question here, and I feel like he set this up almost perfectly for me, because it's something I've always said. What if Sergeant Slaughter signs a new contract at the end of 84? Do we get Hogan versus a heel Sarge at WrestleMania 2? What do you think, John? I would say no. I think that. When Slaughter was gone from the WWF as long as he was, and they brought him back as a heel, you know, even that was surprising, but it worked. I, I don't think you could have turned a babyface like that at all, at least not by 86. I, I mean, I can see them doing it, but I think there would be too many fans who just stuck with Slaughter. So I, I don't think they would have done it. I, I mean, and let me throw this in my dream booking scenario for WrestleMania two would have been, you know, get the opposite of Sergeant Slaughter, get Nikita Koloff, like no matter what it took, get him with Ivan Koloff as his manager for former WWF champion and go in that direction. But I don't think I think Slaughter would have been more valuable to the company in 1986 had he remained babyface. Steve, what are your thoughts? If they had, um, you know, started a uh, Sergeant Slaughter, still very popular, against Roddy Piper, still the, the major heel, that would have been box office. And um, that that's the way I would have gone. Plus, you'd have the benefit of not having Mr. T at WrestleMania 2, which would have been really good. Mr. T was horrible by, by WrestleMania 2. You know, it's funny how quickly pop culture changes when we we're young, because Mr. T was you know, hot as a pistol in 1982 when Rocky Three came out. Then he got his show, and by 1986, you know, he was yesterday's news. It's just funny how that, you know, the time goes by much more slowly when you're young. Well, I'm just thinking all this out. So we go to the end of 84. Sergeant Slaughter takes the deal with Hasbro to do G.I. Joe, and that causes Vince McMahon to get rid of him. If at that time he re-signs, and now he's going to be a part of the LJN line and part of the WWF merchandising system, feuded with the Iron Sheik, you couldn't do that again. I don't know how much him and Nikolai would have in terms of legs. Not much. Not much. 
there weren't too many more foreign heels to feud him with. And I think if we look at WWF TV around that period of time, I don't know, based on the way they did things, if they would have looked at it like, okay, here's a baby face, let's give him a Roddy Piper or someone else. Now, it's important to note, Slaughter is arguably the number two most popular babyface in the company behind Hogan. You could argue Snooker or Slaughter. I think those are the only two arguments. I think and it's those, definitely Slaughter. By the time they let him go, November 84, uh, Slaughter passed Snooker. So let's say you get another year out of him, end of 84 into the end of 85. You find some guys for him to feud with, Kamala or whoever it may be. You get another year out of him. At that point, beginning of 86, are you saying we have more legs with this, we can keep going? Or are you remembering this guy in 1980 and 81 and 83, this guy was the best heel we had? And we need a top heel for Hogan. We got Bundy, but, you know, it's it's not a really – no one ever thinks of the Hogan-Bundy feud. You know, they remember <laughs> it as being the main event match at WrestleMania 2. Maybe they remember Hillbilly Jim helping him train with his busted ribs. But no one ever really talks about that feud. If – and this may have – you know, again, we're fantasy booking. This may have caused a bigger issue, which me, which would have been you couldn't have done this with Orndorff. If you had Slaughter somehow turn on Hogan, who was clearly the most popular guy in the company and wasn't lame and wasn't tired yet, I think that would have been big. Sergeant Slaughter, and who knows how far you go with, you know, I don't think you go with like he supports another country like he did in 1990. I think it's just, I stand for America, this guy's not America, whatever it is. He'll slaughter in 85, still in shape, still could bump, still can bleed and bump. I think there was, or 86, I should say, I think that actually would have been tremendous. Steve, what are your thoughts? You know, in a pervert world, they would have just sent these guys to another country and let them refresh themselves because, I mean, same with Morocco. I mean, these guys were still valuable, still worthwhile, but they were stale, you know. So I, I wish that they could have just sent Slaughter away somewhere. Now you've got you guys got me thinking, right? We're playing the fantasy booking game. What was the name of that '80s movie where the guy snapped and shot the the drill sergeant and shot himself in the head when he was sitting on the toilet? What was the Full name of that jacket. movie? Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> Thank you. Like, what if you had Sergeant Slaughter, like, not really slowly, but like, oh my God, this guy's deranged now. He's a deranged former Marine and he's doing. Crazy he's a drill stuff. sergeant. That's yes. right. He's a drill sergeant. At the end of the day, Sergeant Slaughter's a drill sergeant. So uh, the more I'm thinking about this, the more I'm liking it. Like, you know, you could have him be this deranged former drill instructor who performs acts of cruelty upon those he's supposed to be training and have him blow up the WWF championship belt with a grenade or something like that. <laughs> wow. I like you as a booker. Let's get some of this on camera. <laughs> no, to my earlier point, John. If they had had one more year of Sergeant Slaughter from the end of 84 to the end of 85 as a babyface, do you think there would have been more legs with Sergeant Slaughter as a babyface after that? Or as a heel turn, again, fantasy, logically the only thing they could have done. Yeah, it's not the only thing they could have done, even though the more I'm thinking about it, the more I like it. But what they would have had to do with Slaughter you can't have foreign evil menace of the month every time out. You've got to get him involved in chasing the Intercontinental Championship. Give him a break from the, you know, Iron Sheik Nikolai Volkov views. Then, you know, after a year or whatever, bring in Kamala or another 
heel, foreign heel that you manufacture. But to me, that's not all they should have been doing with Sergeant Slaughter. And if they kept doing that, I mean, if they gave him another feud with the foreign menace after Sheik and after Volkov, I, I don't think people would have bought tickets to see it. And then we get no Corporal Kirshner. I'm listening for tears. I'm listening for some kind of reaction to Corporal Kirshner not being parachuting into the World Wrestling Federation. You know, someone brought up on the Stick to Wrestling board that, you know, the the vignettes, like, you know, which were – someone asked asked a question about it. Like, they wasted so much time on the vignettes on Corporal Kirshner. It's like, you know, the guy never got a push. Same thing with Outback Jack, and you're wasting all this TV time on him. Outback Jack is the is the biggest example of that. At least Corporal Kirshner got over. You know, I mean, it was a simpler time and it was a simpler way to get over. It was just here's the replacement for Sergeant Slaughter, literally parachuting in to replace Sergeant Slaughter versus, boy, they're spending a lot of time on this Australian Outback guy. All right, guys, um, I want to pick a question here. Jesus Salas Rodriguez is asking, if you have the chance to go back in time, which three matches would you love to watch live? Brian, why don't you go first? Ooh, well, first of all, thank you for your question, Jesus. Um, which three matches do I wish I could have seen live? You know, when Mick Foley won the WWE title, or WWF title still, and Austin came out and hit the rock with a chair, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have been in the crowd to feel that pop. That would have been a hell of a moment. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to have been there for WrestleMania three. That's still my favorite event ever. I love the spectacle of it. And you know what? I would have loved to have been there amongst John McAdam and everyone else at Great American Bash 89. I've spent <laughs> so many hours of my life watching Bash 89 on video. I would have loved to have been there. Brian, I've said this on the show before. The, the, the video, the television does not even begin to give that, that, post-match brawl they had with uh, Flair and and uh, Sting against Muda and Funk did not even begin to do it justice. It was wild live. I just wanted to cheer Sid with all you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and the Foley title change like took, hand, took place in Worcester, Massachusetts, right down the road from me, and I still didn't go. I got lame in the late 90s. All right, John, what are your three choices for the, uh, the that type of match? Believe it or not, before Brian said it, I would have said uh, Andre versus Hogan at WrestleMania 3. No, it was not a good match, but I would have loved to have been part uh, of it, you know, to be able to say, hey, I saw this live. Number two match I've never seen but I've heard was terrible was Ric Flair versus Bob Backlund July 4th, 1982 at the Omni. Uh, I, I just would have wanted to see it for myself. Uh, number three, Hogan winning the title uh, from the Sheik at, at, at Madison Square Garden, January 1984. I mean, talk about a moment. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to really go back in time compared to what you guys picked. I, I would have liked to have seen Blassie versus Tolos at the L.A. Coliseum. Oh, that would have been cool. I would have liked to have seen the Sheik versus uh, Freddie Blassie in the cage in Los Angeles with Abdullah Farouk in the cage above the ring. And then because I'm the biggest Bruno fan of, of all, uh, Bruno against Stan Hansen at Shea Stadium, where, according to Stan Hansen, uh, ladies in fur coats were there and men dressed in suits were having heart attacks. So that would have been cool to be there. 
Yeah, according to Stan Hansen, the mafia wanted to put a hit on him. And according to Bruno <laughs> San Martino, I don't know what Stan's talking about. I don't know. I've never heard any of this. I don't know. <laughs> All right. I will take a question from Aaron Minnick. And before I even read the question here, it's stick to wrestling. If I'm critical of a wrestler and you're a fan of that wrestler, or if you're that wrestler themselves, probably not. Don't take it personally. It's not a personal attack. It's just, you know, some guys are better than others. Could Eric Embry have been a bigger star if he remained in a certain territory? I think Eric Embry is one of the most overpushed wrestlers of all time. I'm surprised he be- he became as big a star as he did. Obviously, he was the booker a lot of the time, and he, he pushed himself as being the a bigger star than Kerry Von Eric at one point. But uh, to be honest, if, if Eric had never become a booker, he uh, to, I think he would have just been like, oh yeah. That guy that Tully Blanchard bloodied up on Southwest Championship Wrestling in 1983. I, I, I just never thought that much of him. He didn't have a good look. He wasn't that good in the ring. He was kind of chubby. I didn't like his suits. How about you, Steve? <laughs> well, the, the push he gave himself when he was the Booker in World Class was just so almost over the top, if maybe over the top. It, it was way just, over the top. It was, it was, it was egregious. So, uh, you know, uh, just to have him be considered to be pushed anywhere else, I don't think it was necessary, honestly. And I'll let Brian uh, add any comments he wants to add. Well, first of all, thank you for your question, Aaron. And when you say, could Eric Embry have been a bigger star if he had remained in a certain territory? What is that certain territory? Is there a certain <laughs> territory you have in mind? I actually think Eric Embry got all he could have out of Eric Embry. And, Whatever the biggest highlight is for an Eric Embry fan, I don't think things would have been too much different if he had booked somewhere else or gone somewhere else. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the art of of booking oneself as the superstar. I mean, that's clearly what Eric Embry wanted to do. And in order to make sure that happened, or should I say to maximize its chances of happening, he went out and buried Kerry Von Eric. And I saw exactly what he was doing at the time. Thomas <laughs> yeah. He beat Kerry Von Eric with the claw. That was Eric Embry booking, I believe. It was. And yeah. he went out of his way to, you know, make sure that, you know, Kerry was, was sent a few steps down the ladder. And I'm, I'm to this day, I'm surprised Kerry did it. Amazing. Yeah. And Kevin went home. Like, Kevin didn't want to deal with any of that shit. Kerry ended up just doing it and, you know, riding it out until he got to WWE. Surprisingly, he almost went to WCW in 1990. Here's a question. From John Coco Ware, <laughs> ever make it to Pittsburgh for a show? The answer, no. What about you, John? Of Pittsburgh, and I'm not just saying that. I, I think Pittsburgh is great. It's a beautiful city with the rivers and the hills and all that good stuff. I, I, I love Pittsburgh. I don't think I'm ever going to be there a, a, again, but I got to see a Pirates game. I went out there for the... Uh, I'm, this is embarrassing because I loved this man. I can't think of his name because I'm so bad with names. <laughs> Brian Hildebrand. I went out there to see the Brian Hildebrand. Uh, oh, awesome. Uh, not memorial show, the fundraiser show when he was still around. Yeah. And we we turned it into like, okay, we'll go see the Pirates. We'll go see the Cleveland Indians. We'll go see the Cincinnati Reds, et cetera. Uh, but I love Pittsburgh. But I, don't think I'm, I don't think I'm going. How about you, Steve? There, I've never been. I've uh, landed at the airport, maybe, uh, but uh, I think Bruno's favorite restaurant there is called Rico's. Uh, I would, I would probably go there just to uh, see his famous booth where him and his wife sat, and I guess there's a picture. There's, they've got it roped off, I guess, like like he was the Pope. 
But, oh, uh, sure. you know, I, I would like to I was to in my booth one day, and all of a sudden, Larry Zabisco was under the booth. He said, I want to be a wrestler. I said, welcome to my house, Larry. Larry. <laughs> you brought up Brian Holderbrand before. I just want to say real quick, because uh, anytime he's brought up, I always want to say this. What a great guy he was, and he was so what? nice to me when I was a kid. And uh, I really miss him, and I wish he was around today. A tremendous guy. He was an awesome guy. Brian Hildebrand walks up to me uh, at one of John Rezzi's conventions in 1990. And this was before you know he was a ref or anything like that. He walks up to me, hey, you're John McKenna. And he starts talking to me like he's known me his entire life. And I was like, man, I need this guy's confidence. <laughs> yeah, great guy, great guy. Hey, one other thing I want to say, like, I love Pittsburgh. I think Pittsburgh is great. I don't just say that about any city when the, the name comes up. Like, let me give you an example. Cincinnati sucked. <laughs> well, the next question, John, is, uh, coincidentally, numbers from Les Thatcher. What do you think of my hometown of Cincinnati? <laughs> oh, you want to hear the Cincinnati story? Yeah, please. Okay, we go to the 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 Hildebrand game, and who's there? Danny, who's the reliever for the Reds? Danny something. You guys kind of know this. Come on. For the Reds, what, what year are we talking late about? 90s? Oh, late 90s. Danny Graves. Okay, yeah, 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 I remember him. And who was the, the first baseman? Like, great big black guy. Really good player. Delman Young? No. Delman uh, Young, thank yeah. you. So we just walk up to these two, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to the game the, the next, uh, tomorrow night. And Delman Young gets on his phone, and he's like, oh, do you have tickets? And we're like, well, no. And he's like, oh, I'll, I'll make sure you guys get tickets. And he puts some will call. So that's pretty cool, right? Then we get to the stadium, and it's the old Cincinnati Stadium. I noticed that people in front of me are like getting out of their seats and, and going someplace else. And one of my friends is like, oh, shit. And we are surrounded by cockroaches. And I mean, like 50 yards down is nothing but cockroaches. They're, they're all over the place. So we obviously got the hell out of there. And that's my Cincinnati story. And I may have been wrong. I'm looking right now. Delman Young wasn't on that team. Dimitri Young was the right Dimitri fielder. Dimitri Young, thank that you. That was who I was thinking of because the regular first baseman was Sean, uh, Sean Casey. All right. So, yeah, there's Dimitri a rookie Dimitri card that never turned out right. The Sean Casey rookie card. Jesus. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, Rob Jen Rose is asking if you could pick two WWF teams to have competed in the Crockett Cups, who would they be and why? And I think this is kind of an easy question. I same here, but Brian, who who would you take? Bulldogs Heart Foundation. Yeah, that, that's go. my boring answer too. I mean, I, I can't even think of who's in third place. The Machines in third place. <laughs> <laughs> they can go in that opening match against Giant Baba and the, oh, who did Baba bring uh, in '87? Oh, Is that Wajima? horrible guy. Yeah, Wajima. Wajima, that's him. Ah, but Brian, during the first, was it the first Crockett Cup we're talking about? No, that was uh, 87. That was the second Crockett Cup. Oh, okay. Baltimore. I didn't see the question. I, I, I regret not going to that show. I absolutely should have gone to the 87 Crockett Cup. It's Baltimore. It's, you know, a 10-hour drive or a quick flight. Big mistake well, on my part. When was the first time you went to Baltimore for a show? 1988. Was the, I went to – no, I'm, I'm – that's not true either. 19 – no, 1987 was the first time I went to Baltimore for a show. I went down to Philly. I was going to see the show at the Philadelphia Civic Center, but they were having a better show down the road in Baltimore, so that's where we went. All right. Uh, we all pretty much have the same answer on that, so I'll go to the next question here. 
This one was sent in by Lance O'Donnell. Any info on the South Atlantic pro wrestling promotion that the old JCP lifers started after the Turner buyout? I can remember seeing rankings for them in the magazines, but have never been able to find much on it. Did you guys get to see this? This aired in New York, actually. I got to see the promotion, and it looked pretty good on paper because they had, like, Ricky Steamboat and a few other guys that I liked, and that promotion was awful, I thought. It was booked by George Scott, and then it was booked by Robert Fuller, and that uh, right there at that time, you know, says a lot. Yeah. I mean, it it looked good on paper, and I, I was getting tapes of it, and it was absolutely horrible. Steve, have you ever seen that promotion? No, uh, it never made it to upstate New York, uh, but uh, I do remember reading about it in The Observer and Chris Chavez. Was, that was probably the first time he, uh, Tatanka, yeah. really got some uh, you know, real notice in that promotion. And it became the NAWA, so it had two different names, SAPW and then NAWA, and it aired on Sports Channel in New York. And you had Vince Torelli, who later became Ken Shamrock. You had the mm-hmm. Nasty Boys, the Malenkos, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. It was a really interesting mix of who was available in the southern states at that moment. And it was actually a a reflection of George Scott himself because they were doing the Paul Jones mentoring Vince Torelli thing. Oh, that's right. They were trying to relive 1978 in 1990. That, ladies and gentlemen, George Scott. Well, he ended up owning a lot of uh, apartments in uh, Tampa, and I guess he he really did well for himself after that. But... uh, but I, I enjoyed him as a booker in WWF. As a booker, I think he makes for an excellent landlord. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who got the next question? I think it's me. Mark Matsuo asked, your Mount Rushmore of bad announcers, please. I'll tell you what. Let's the three of us put together this Mount Rushmore. Brian, who do you have? All time or currently? Like, what, what do we? All time. Ooh. I'll put Shivani on the list because I hate his stuff now and I hated him throughout WCW <laughs> after 1992. And I think that's enough of a body of work that he can go on that list. I'll put Michael Cole on the list because I think his style of commentary, the the fake commentator for wrestling doesn't help wrestling. It's just a guy yelling shit out there. Nothing actually connects. Those are my two modern guys I'll pick to go back a ways for some of the older ones. Worst commentator. I mean, Lord Alfred Hayes was terrible. We go listen yes. to Lord Alfred Hayes with Sean Mooney. Like that's the, one of the worst teams you'll ever hear. And I was primetime wrestling for like a year. I like Vince up to a point. I like Monsoon. I'm not one of the people that hates Monsoon. The only thing I hate is him using literally nonstop when that's not the word he's actually trying to use. <laughs> I think it was. I think yeah. that was him insulting everyone's intelligence. Nonstop. He literally hit him in the head. He literally shot him. No, he didn't literally do any of these things. You (laughs) illiterate. I shouldn't say that. Um, (laughs) Ed Whalen was spectacularly bad. I was going to nickname this the ring of ding dong dandy of, of Mount Rushmore's because he's (laughs) my number one. David Crockett. I mean, how could you ever leave him off a list like this in the worst (laughs) comedy? He was on national TV, right? I mean, that puts you above a regional announcer. He was better. He was actually better when he was a regional announcer than when he was on national TV. Someone will say Johnny Weaver, but I'll go with David Crockett, Tony Schiavone, Michael Cole, and Ed Whalen. I like that one. How about you, Steve? 
I, I'm only going to add one name uh, just because he was just so bland and didn't really add anything other than a pleasant sounding voice and a nice looking face. Uh, Jack Reynolds, who did IWA and WWF briefly, oh. <laughs> he, he was pretty bad. I, I, I remember, uh, I, I, uh, me and my buddies, my brother, we were, we used to like film video, wiffle ball games, video wiffle ball games, and I would do Jack Reynolds and I would do Jesse Ventura doing the announcing of the wiffle ball game. And, you know, he was just so bland that he'd be like, uh, well, Jesse, uh, here, here's, uh, Steve is at the plate. And then Jesse would chime in like, listen up, Jack. <laughs> you know, like he would do, but, but he was just so, uh, terrible, uh, the Jack Reynolds. Jack Reynolds. One of the big moves George Scott made when he took over as Booker in 89 was to bring Jack Reynolds in. To oh, God, Shivani. I forgot about that. They were going to have him replace Shivani, and they tried him out. They tried him out of one of the Clash of the Champions as a ring announcer, and I'll never forget it. I may be getting it slightly wrong, but this was it. And here it is at a combined weight of 130 pounds <laughs> and Eros Russia, the Russian assassins. <laughs> <laughs> So that wasn't going to work. And again, he did the IWA in 75. This is 1989 now, and he was out to lunch. He was terrible. <laughs> All right. Mine, Ed, Ed Whalen is at the top of it. He was horrible. Another one, this is going to be a little bit controversial because I know he was really, really good for a long time. But by 1983, Gordon Soley was just incredibly bad. And like, I, I'm not sure if he should be – you know, what we're looking at, like overall body of work or just like that five year chunk where he was just terrible. But, you know, Gordon, it was like he wasn't even paying attention. He didn't know who the jobbers were. Nothing. Another one. And this is more quality over quantity. There is a show from late 1987 out there from the Houston uh, summit. And it was televised, and the, the the color commentary team, I forget who the third person was who was in charge, but it was Mike McGurk and Pete Doherty out and there. And Bruce Pritchard. And Bruce Pritchard. It was Dang, awful. He was terrible. Yeah. He was awful. <laughs> yeah. Like, this group had to be heard to be believed, especially, you know, Mike McGurk is clueless, and Pete Doherty has, you know, not a very high IQ guy. There was a period of time where you wonder if these people showed up at the studio, like not knowing who they were going to do commentary with, because just random people like, all right, today you've got superstar Billy Graham and slick. Like you just random people you're paired up with. <laughs> yeah. You got to somehow make their Billy Graham was a horrible commentator. Now that I say that well, he was, he was brother, brother, look at brothers. <laughs> okay, Billy, we get it. It's, he didn't last, but no one was worse than Angelo Mosca in 1984. <laughs> right. He was very bad. Hey, let me ask you, John, in terms of 83 Gordon Soley, because that's always been kind of a controversial thing. Like if you read The Observer back then, worst commentator and Dave rips him and people don't understand that now. When do you think the line was? Was it like as soon as he stopped working with Piper, he gave up? When do you think it happened that he went from being Gordon Soley? All right. Gordon Soley on wrestling. I like this to oh, maybe he should stay home this week. I would say right around. Uh, fall or late 1982, and I noticed it at the time that Bron uh, Gordon Soley went into a very sharp decline, and I was talking to someone about it maybe 30 years ago, and apparently Gordon really got hurt when he took a bump during the Morocco Piper uh, angle, and I guess that messed up his hip. And apparently, and this is what the person told me that Gordon was uh, really you know, 
using painkillers to uh, an, an, an alarming rate and mixing them with alcohol, and it, it showed on his performance. If you're part of Gordon Soley's estate and are coming to sue me, I'm just <laughs> telling you that's what I heard. It's interesting, too, because you would think the booking of Ole in 83 would be better if you had alcohol and pills. But I guess <laughs> <laughs> I guess even that didn't work. A <laughs> little bit of a spoiler. Sometime in the very near future, we are going to be reviewing an episode of Georgia Championship Wrestling from 1983, just so everyone doesn't think I'm crazy. When I'm talking about that promotion just fell into a deep, dark hole. Steve, I think you're up. I've got a question that has some meat on it here. Uh, Pete Pingle, he asks, we all know that Bob Backlund just fell off the wrestling landscape after he lost the title of the Iron Sheik. What could have been done to stay relevant? With his in-ring skills, I feel he could have made an impact somewhere. If you were him, what would you have done? Turn heel. That's the only way there would have been anything of, you know, of use of Bob Backlund, I think, between 1984 and 1992 or whatever. He right. had to be heel. I don't think there was any more room for babyface Bob Backlund. What he wanted to do, you know, if you ever see, I think it's ICW. He started doing some tapings for them in like 85. Mm-hmm. Sure. You go watch that and you can see what the problem is. He feels like almost like a superstar athlete from another decade. He doesn't feel of the time. I feel like I punch downward on post 83 Bob Backlund, maybe even post 82, Way too hard, but I agree, Brian, with everything you said. There was just no place in the wrestling business for him. Uh, we're going to have a show where we sh- have clips from Pro Wrestling USA from fall, winter 1984-85, where he's unpushable. And then they yeah. did this thing. I mean, ICW, he teamed with Terry Funk. He teamed with Terry Funk, I remember that. Uh, on ICW, I don't remember that. Oh, no, for Pro Wrestling USA. Didn't he team with Terry Funk once, or am I wrong? I he might have I, I okay. I'm not I, sure. Well, I know maybe. Terry Terry team with Bachwinkle on one of those shows. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Pro yeah. L- let me talk about Pro Wrestling USA for a second. First, they have Terry Funk as the lovable baby face color commentator, and then a couple two three weeks later, he's Terry Funk the heel out there with no explanation. Once again, tells you what you need to know about Pro Wrestling USA. But on ICW, they did this thing where you know Bob, I think he beat Johnny Rods, and after the match, you know the fans are rewarding him with these like handmade cardboard belts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just watching this going, what the hell? How you, I'm, I'm a wrestling fan. I'm 20 years old. I don't want to see this crap. It's not cool. Yeah, it got real minor league real quick with Bob Backlund. Yeah, and again, he, you know, he tried it at Pro Wrestling USA. He tried it in Florida. He didn't get over. There, there just wasn't a place for him. The wrestling business had passed him by. All right. Whose turn is it for a question, or do we uh, exhaust the Bob Backlund answer? <laughs> yeah. uh i brian it is your turn to answer ask answer a question i'll ask the question answers are not promised let's see adrian collins sent in a question why do you think ravishing rick rude never got a wwf world heavyweight title run as the years went by i heard hogan hated on him have you ever heard this rumor well we could definitely say I could see Hogan not wanting to work a serious feud with him because of his physique. Now, he was in great shape, don't get me wrong. And in WCW, he got thicker. But Rick Rude, like in 89, was still rather slim, especially compared to a Hulk Hogan. 
So I'm not saying that's right, but I could see that as being a reason why Hogan wouldn't want to do it. Steve, what are your thoughts on this matter? I have a lot of thoughts. I'll be sharing well, well, them soon. Well, well my thought is it, it seemed like from what we ended up seeing, like especially around 89, 90, that uh, Rude and Warrior were matched up a lot, and that became a main event feud. And I think that uh, Vince's thinking was that maybe he would be the next major champion or major lead heel. Uh, let's keep him away from Hogan because we don't want him to do the job. Let's kind of save him up a bit. I think that's what the thinking was. But, uh, John, what's your thinking on that? Well, first of all, Adrian, I want to thank you for the question, and thank you for listening to Stick to Wrestling, assuming you do. But here, here's my – kind of my wrestling pet peeve here are, is a question. I, I want to explain that. Why do you think Rick, Ravishing Rick Rude never got a WWF World Heavyweight title run? And the answer really is simple. He was never the best choice. He was never the best choice when he was in the WWF. You could not put aside Hulk Hogan to make Rick Rude the WWF champion. You could not put Ultimate Warrior aside to make Rick Rude the WWF champion. Really, he was never the best choice. I, I've heard that Rick Rude and Hulk Hogan, you know, supposedly they didn't get along. I actually don't believe that. I think that was kind of over the you know, 30, 35 years has been speculated upon as, well, gee, why didn't they have a run? Well, Hogan must not have liked him. There was just never a time where it was the best thing to do with Hulk Hogan. Um, and with that said, I, I was in attendance for the one Hulk Hogan versus Rick Rude match in the Boston Garden. I think it was January 9th, 1988. You know, but the thing, too, is Rick Rude was the perfect guy to help build up to war the warrior for the next level, because as a kid, Ultimate Warrior going after the Heenan family to get to Rick Rude was a big deal. And then he drops the belt back to the Warrior. And by the next year, again, he cut his hair, seemed more bulked up. They're trying to treat him a little more seriously to get another match out of the Warrior. The problem was we just saw so much of him in the Warrior. So at that time, they could have done something else with him. But feeding him to the Warrior again at SummerSlam 90, I don't think helped him at all. And then they started setting up him in the big boss man, and that's right when Rick Rude quit. Yeah, that to me, Rick Rude versus Big Boss Man, the second match down on the card, is a really good way to, to use Rick Rude. You know, we were talking about vignettes earlier. I think some of the best vignettes the WWF ever did was Rick Rude training with Bobby Heenan and getting his hair cut and saying, look, you know, I am taking all of this very seriously. I think that did a lot to get Rick Rude as over as he needed to be for that SummerSlam match. But that that was, you know, not to go into a deep uh, side topic here, but that's one of the things that killed the Ultimate Warriors title run was they went right to Rick Rude again. And then there was no one else to follow that up with. I, you know what? I will go to my grave saying that the reason Ultimate Warrior 33 years ago did not get over as WWF champion is they were still pushing him as, as Hulk Hogan's little brother. They were making it clear that Hulk Hogan was still the number one guy in the company. You know, I mean, obviously Hogan Earthquake was the main event at Wrestle, at, uh, not WrestleMania, SummerSlam. at SummerSlam. Summer thank you. And, yeah. you know, that was, I mean, they just made it obvious. He, you know, you might be the champion, but you're number two. Do you think Hogan needed to go away in order for the Warrior to get a fair shot? Yes, I actually do. I think they should have given Hogan a vacation. If you go back, they kind of made Bruno Sammartino kind of went away when Bob Backlund 
first became champion. So it's a proven formula, and I would have gone back to it. You know, Hogan, favorite, yeah, he can go make a movie. My favorite thing, too, is as soon as Bruno went to sue Vince McMahon, that's when all of a sudden Buddy Rogers showed up back on TV. <laughs> what a sick move. <laughs> when I learned about that, I absolutely cracked up. Like, oh, that's why Buddy Rogers hasn't been with the WWF, because Bruno won't be around him. Yeah. But you're right. What a dick move. Okay, Bruno. See you later, buddy. Get over here. All right. What's who's got the next question? I believe that's my friend Steve. Well, here's a good one. Michael Faulkner is asking, what was the single biggest card in wrestling history? I'm not talking about highest attendance or anything like that. I'm talking the biggest card, which had the most impact in pro wrestling. And what, what do you guys think? What do you think, Brian? WrestleMania three. To me, it all comes back to that event. I think it's either one or three. I'm leaning towards three. I mean, one got the WWF an amazing amount of publicity and it kind of established that they, you know, this was going to be the top wrestling company at least for a little while. But three was like, you know, I mean, it was just so big. It had the dream match. It had, you know, 78 or 93,000 people, whatever it was. It was an impressive looking sight. I would take three just over one. I couldn't even tell you what the number three all-time biggest show was. Like, hey, there's well, such a distance. I want to ask both of you this follow-up question. Um, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, being the AEW has been around for, what, three, three or four years now. How come they Ooh. haven't come up with a premium event like that? How come they haven't come up with this is our Super Bowl wrestling? I think, actually, if you ask them – Internally, they would tell you they have. They think that uh, all in or all out, they saw us that way. No, I mean, I'm not even joking. I think that they've seen, you know, different events they have like that. Now, again, you know, when you say, well, I don't have an event like that, I don't know if you mean a WrestleMania or a WrestleMania 3. WrestleMania 3 is obviously a very uh, right. unique set of circumstances. You need star power for that. You know, I think it's one of those issues that a lot of companies, like TNA, what was their annual event? It wasn't Slammiversary. It was a different one that was supposed to be their big event. Ring of Honor had final battle at the end of mm -hmm. every year. Mm -hmm. I think with AEW, if you ask them, they would tell you, they would name one of their big events and say, double or nothing, this is our annual major event. <laughs> but they don't have one that, you know, the name WrestleMania is just the perfect name. Right. So they don't have something like that, no. I'm going to ask you, both of you guys a follow-up question on this. In the 90s, WWF had WrestleMania as their you know premium annual event, WCW really didn't have one that stood out. You know, Starcade, not really. Um, you know, and my question always was like, you know, do you really? I, it works for the WWF, but who else has that ever really worked for? And you know, I don't think that was a big mistake on WCW's part. Like, I think there were some people, WWF fans, like, okay, well, we'll get WrestleMania, and then everything else sucks, whereas WCW had, like, four equally big events every year. I, I never thought there was a problem with that. And I just received a missive from Lou Kippelman. The TNA event is bound for glory. So does that really sound like a major wrestling event to you? <laughs> Sounds like a Bruce the sounds like a Bruce Springsteen album. Or a Bruce Lee album. <laughs> Bruce Coburn album. Anybody. <laughs> right. Hey, I got a I got a question here. This one was sent in by Chad Arthur. If they pulled the trigger on Don Morocco beating Bob Backlund for the WWF title, 
who would have taken the title off Morocco? Jimmy Snuka, who had his issues, or wait until they get Hogan back at the end of 83, or someone else. So I guess the question is, if Backlund gets the belt off, uh, excuse me, if Morocco gets the belt off Backlund, who takes the belt from Morocco? But to figure that out, you got to know when Morocco would get the belt off Backlund. Well, Steve, I mean, this is kind of up you and I's alley. I'd like to hear what you think about this. Well, when I read this question, it, to me, it was like, well, this was never going to happen because uh, when the older older Vince was in charge, he really just wanted Backlund. He wasn't interested in that. And then when Vince, younger Vince, got in charge, I mean, he could have he could have done it. He could have made that change, but he, for whatever reason, he felt, you know, I think he, I think what his feeling was, when I really want to put this national expansion thing going, I want to have, I want to have Hogan at the, at the helm. I want to have Hogan doing it. I don't think he wanted to have these other incidental changes happen beforehand. And having the all-American Hogan beat the hated, you know, Iranian Iron Sheik, what what better transition than that? So I don't think that th- this question really needs to even be in the discussion. My thoughts, strictly from a creative viewpoint, standpoint, because the WWF had a giant 1983 so you can't say, okay, well, here's what they did wrong. They, they didn't do anything wrong. But aesthetically, artistically, I would have liked to have seen Morocco win the title from Bob Backlund January 1983, have a superstar Billy Ru- Graham type run uh, during that time where we would have had a, a snooker feud, where we would have had a, uh, at least a, a series with Tony Atlas. We could have had Rocky Johnson. With- Rocky yeah. Johnson, exactly. Uh, so, you know, I, I would have liked to have that instead of a sixth year of Bob Backlund, like, let's have a fun, you know, another SBG type run. But again, I, I, I can't be critical because the fans were still coming out. Whether it's the mass superstar or someone else, you always hear these theories. And a lot of that comes from things Bill Edia said himself about who would have won the title instead of the Iron Sheik and dropped it to Hogan. Is there anyone you think would have done a good job or a better job than the Iron Sheik did? Well, I mean, no, obviously not. I mean, we had uh, like five years ago, we had a whole show on it that it's not that I'm calling Bill Edie a liar. I definitely am not. I bet Edie went up to Patterson or, or Monsoon, whoever, and said, hey, why this guy and not me? And they kind of said something to make him feel better that, oh, Bob wants to lose to a guy who has an amateur background. I don't buy that. Bob Backlund didn't care who he lost to, number one. And number two, I mean, whoever was getting the belt was was Bob's next opponent at Madison Square Garden after, you know, Hogan had decided to come on, come in, well, excuse me. And also, I'll add, you know, we, we the three of us, we've been watching these clips of wrestling from the past 40 years, and probably one of the most common ones we've seen again and again and again is Hogan winning the title from the Sheik. You know, it was, it was Hogan beating Bill Eady or Hogan beating uh, – you know, anybody else, even Morocco, it really wouldn't have meant so much. But him beating the Iron Sheik is what people remember. What about Ivan Koloff? Uh, I don't I mean, I, for, for me, that wouldn't have worked. I mean, I know the there man was some who beat old, Bruno, the man who beat Bruno, the man who beat Backlund. That's the right. man who Hogan beats. That's I like that. I, I mean, I, I think it was I think personally, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. But and he was I, think it was, I think it was better that the Sheik uh, did it just because uh you know, the whole thing with Iran at the time, I mean, I know Rocky IV was big with the Russia thing, and, and uh, but 
Koloff, Koloff had some mileage left in him, and he definitely proved he had a lot of mileage in Crockett, but uh, I'm glad they went the way they did. But imagine if instead of Ayatollah Blassie, we had Mikhail Blassie. <laughs> Comrade Fred. Comrade Fred Blassie, you see? Now we're, now we're getting stuff done. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the hour always goes by so fast, but I do want to get one more question in, and this is more anecdotal than anything. Kevin Elias asks, what was the deal with Ted Arcidi? Did they have big plans for him? I only ask because they inexplicably uh, made an action figure out of him when they didn't do that for the entire roster. Uh I mean, I just want to mention this. I used to live right across the the bridge, not the street, from Ted Arcidi's women's gym in Manchester, New Hampshire. <laughs> it's it's shared a parking lot with the gym that I went to, which was not a women's gym. And I regret never just walking in and saying, "I'm sure Ted, I'm sure you get this all the time." I just want to say a quick hello. You know, I was a big fan back in the day. You know, of wrestling, maybe not of Ted. I hear he's a really good guy, and I regret never having done that because I used to drive by it all of the time. I think they had big plans for him. I think that you know, it, it sounds good. He's this incredibly, you know, he's this massive, massive guy. Even by pro wrestling standards, he had a good look to him, and that's kind of where it ended. He wasn't terrible on interviews, but I mean. Ted walked around like he had his feet stuck in buckets of cement. He couldn't move. And I think once the WWF saw that, they kind of jumped off his horse a little bit. Any thoughts on that, Brian? I mean, everyone in wrestling has always been chasing after the idea of having the world's strongest man on the roster. And I think that's partially why he was brought in there, because you can then make that claim. Didn't work. And... You know, going back years later and watching, I remember thinking, is he a heel or a babyface? I can't even tell sometimes. <laughs> that figure, when I went to Toys R Us in uh, Valley Stream in 1989 to buy all the LJNs for my birthday, they had the Ted RCD there still. And I remember wow. just thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> like all these other people, even as a kid, everyone else had a gimmick. All of a sudden, here's a guy in red trunks, just Ted RCD. And then he's never on any wrestling show I've ever seen, you know, as a kid. Eventually, you see him. Very short run, end of 85 into, what, early 86? I think he's at WrestleMania 2. I mean... He's in the Battle Royal. You know, Bill Kazmaier. I mean, there's always these guys, the world's strongest man. Every promoter is always chasing that. Bill Quagmire. That guy was the worst. <laughs> Steve, any thoughts on, on the Ted RCD question? Uh, well, we, we, we definitely liked what he contributed to the Morton Downey show. Uh, we can't forget Sour that. Sour grapes! Sour grapes! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be doing a show on that Morton Downey Jr. show before the end of the year. But, Steve, go, please go right ahead. I, I, from what I hear, I think he um, uh, WWF had a close relationship with Tony Altimore's school, uh, a different uh, wrestlers they were training, and Mario Mancini was one of the top wrestlers from that school. And, and I guess he was working really closely with Ted to try and teach him how to work, but it, it didn't work out that well. And uh you know, in, but, but I'm, maybe he sold a ton of dolls. You never know. I know. There's no way he sold a ton of dolls. <laughs> <laughs> no way. You know what I, I read a long time ago? One of the top-selling WWF action figures were back in, like, 86, 87. I think S.D. Jones. S.D. Jones was, like, number three at one point. Wow. And WWF doesn't say, you know, we should probably push a black wrestler, but no, we got to keep going with the 
Same old white guys. Mm. Well, that was the thing. They didn't have too many black wrestlers as figures yet. Junkyard Dog, which was uh, technically Series 1, but it was the second round of Series 1. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two different versions of S.D. Jones. They put out one where they said he was from Philadelphia, and they put out yes. one where they said he was from the islands. They tried to make him more exotic. There was Kamala and Slick. There weren't that many. So if you were a black wrestling fan, it was really unfair. There wasn't, I mean, it was kind of like watching WWF TV, sad, sad to say, but there wasn't a lot of representation there for you. Right. No, and we've talked about this on the show before when I had Ricardo Coleman. I mean, you know, this is the, this is the Michael Jordan era, and, you know, you guys don't take advantage of that. It's crazy. I think they should have signed Edgar Boo Thomas and pushed him to the moon. <laughs> what, what, whatever happened to Edgar Boo Thomas? Like, why was he in the in and out of the business so quickly? Do we know? I think he was one of those Watts guys. Uh, he was either on the wrestling team at OU or he was on a wrestling. I think it was OU. And it was OU. It was probably one of those things where Watts goes there because he's so involved in football and wrestling, and he meets him. And what's this guy got to do? All right, we'll make him a wrestler. And it didn't work out, but. I'll always love that name for the rest of my life. Edgar Boo Thomas. That's a good one. It really is. Brian, thank you for taking the time to be on episode number 250 of the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you asking me, and I appreciate you and Steve and, and Lou, of course, having me here. And thank you, and congratulations on 250 episodes. I hope you have at least 250 more in the tank. And, you know, this has become a very popular show. A lot of people really like it. And like I said, I'm honored to be involved with it. I'm honored to be the executive producer, but I'm really honored that you would invite me on today. Well, I, you're, you were my only choice. Steve, thank you for taking the time to be part of Sick to Wrestling today. That was a great, great episode. It was great to uh, talk with Brian and, uh, you know, uh, look forward to next week. We'll start the next 250 episodes. That's a good way of looking at it. I want to thank uh, Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing. That's this- right. That is right. You need to put him over more. Lou's awesome. I, I, you know, I really try to put him over in a big, big way every episode. You guys have no idea how what a great job Lou does because you don't hear the uh, the raw feed of this podcast, if you will. And as I do every week, I want to thank Brian Last and Arcadian Vanguard Network for giving me this platform. Brian, sincerest thanks. Oh, I. Once again, I'm more than happy. And let me just say, if I can add one last comment from me here, uh, I just want to say my appearance today, I want to dedicate this to the memory of Matt Mann, who was a big supporter of Arcadian Vanguard shows going back to the very beginning. And I know he's been a former guest here on the show. And I just want to say I was very, very sad to hear that he passed. And I hope his memory continues on. And my best wishes go out to his friends and family. Very, very sad to hear about his passing. I, I feel the exact same way I found out earlier this afternoon. Uh, and, you know, you hear like, okay, someone that I don't know on Twitter is saying that Matt has passed away and you hope it's not true. And then, you know, as, as the hour goes on, like there's more and more evidence. And then finally it becomes official. And yeah, Matt is going to be missed. He was on the show twice and he did an excellent job both times. Uh, I mean, my, my thoughts go out to, his family and friends and uh don't want to end the show on that that sad note but that's what it is i mean you know we're, we're all going to miss matt so thank you all very much for listening i hope you have an excellent weekend and we're going to do this again in a week this has been a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network this concludes our podcast day